This episode has a parental advisory and is not suitable for children. The narrative contains strong language of a sexual nature. We have no idea why DA Ward thought that it was news that the EAR did not match the 2011 DNA results in Donna's case. We've known that for nearly three years, and we assume that the Tulare DA examined the question at the time of the original testing. Larry Poole checked it against the EAR for us in 2016, and we know some of the EAR task force members looked at it as early as 2012. This was no secret or big revelation. We referenced this testing ourselves in prior podcast episodes. Obviously, when we first learned about that test, the first question we asked was, did the male DNA detected come from Donna's killer? The short answer is no. The source of the male alleles was not semen or blood left on Donna at the time of her murder. Contributions from those sources were ruled out through lab testing in both 1976 and in 2011. The source of the three-week alleles was likely stray skin cells or spittle that contaminated the sample between 1975 and 2011, including known contamination that occurred at the crime lab during the DNA test itself. When there are very few clues in an investigation, and even fewer pieces of solid evidence, it's easy to lose sight of relevancy and follow bad information down a rabbit hole or close a door that should remain open. We had to know if the 2011 DNA testing really closed the door on an EAR connection, implicated Clifton, or was irrelevant evidence that had no meaning to the case. Like everyone else, we wanted to believe that there was conclusive scientific evidence to close this case for good. However, what we learned was that all of the evidence that might have contained the killer's DNA was destroyed 42 years ago. Of all the myths and stories surrounding Donna's murder, the most horrible and confusing is the issue of sexual assault. Normally, this is a question that is fully resolved after an autopsy, and that certainly should have been the case in Donna's murder. The autopsy report is clear, concise, and conclusive. There were no physical signs of sexual assault, and all searches for spermatozoa in and on her body were negative. The appropriate swabs, washes, and pubic hair samples were collected and sent to the lab for confirmation of these findings. There is absolutely no physical evidence of sexual assault or ejaculation found at Donna's autopsy. Dr. Miller gave this same testimony at trial. Everything seemed to go off the rails a couple of days after the autopsy, when D.A. Powell charged Clifton with rape and sodomy. We have never been able to find any good-faith basis for these charges. However, in an attempt to give Powell the benefit of the doubt, we searched for any other possible signs of semen. First, we followed the swabs, washes, and pubic hair to the lab and made sure that they were all negative for spermatozoa. They were. What about the scarf found tied around Donna's waist and some of her hairs found stuck to her thigh? Negative. We found the examination of her underwear and sanitary pad and all of Clifton's underwear collected in his house. Absolutely no spermatozoa found on any item at any time. Although it was increasingly difficult to keep an open mind towards Powell's actions, we continued to dig through the evidence. 
Did any of the testing find any sign of a blood type other than Donna's type A that could indicate the presence of semen, saliva, or blood from her killer? No. And the only evidence that tested positive for Clifton's type O was the actual vial of Clifton's own blood collected at the jail. What about PGM testing? A different PGM type could be detected even if the killer were a non-secretor. Nope. Only Donna's PGM type, 1 minus 1. So there was no evidence of physical sexual injury, spermatozoa, or a foreign blood or PGM type. It appeared that all of the evidence on Donna's body was 100% consistent with having come from her menstrual and wound blood. There was nothing that pointed to the presence of another person, let alone a specific male. Okay, even if you've stayed with us so far in this episode, the rest may be too much. We're going to trace Donna's pubic hair, and we feel terrible that the podcast has been dragged down to this level. However, our goal is the truth, and we expect more lies from D.A. Ward on this issue, so we don't see a good option here. Donna was last seen at 3.45 p.m. on Friday, December 26, 1975. She was found naked from the waist down, lying face down in the mud on Neal Ranch at 1.30 p.m., Saturday, December 27, 1975. There has never been any question that Donna was killed shortly after she left Don Lee's house and was at Neal Ranch that entire time. Donna's body was found by a man driving a spray rig. He testified at trial that he drove so close to Donna's body that the wheels nearly touched her. He fully covered her body in spray from his tank. There is no record of what kind of spray he was using and no sample was collected for later analysis or to be used as a testing control in the lab. TCSO Hallgwin and Bird were the first officers to arrive at Neal Ranch. They received the radio call at 2.08 p.m. and arrived at 2.15. Other TCSO officers that we have documented on the scene are Hensley, King, McKinney, and Johnson. The coroner, Dr. Miller, arrived at 3 p.m., Additionally, Donna's uncle was brought to Neal Ranch and positively identified Donna at the scene. None of the reports describe who turned over Donna's body or at what time, but it's clear that did happen prior to her uncle's identification. Additionally, we know that Donna's body was removed from the grove by two mortuary workers. Our best estimate is that this occurred between 4 and 4.30 p.m. Those unnamed workers transported Donna's body directly to Exeter Hospital, where x-rays were taken of her head and upper torso. We have no record of anyone from the coroner's office or TCSO traveling with Donna's body or maintaining chain of custody from the grove to the hospital and then from the hospital to the mortuary. At 5.45 p.m., TCSO forensics officer Brian Johnson began photographing Donna's body at the funeral home, Miller Chapel, in Exeter. Reading from his notes, we can see that he photographed all of her wounds in color and black and white, so he rolled her front and back. It's highly unlikely he would have been wearing gloves in 1975, and there is no chance he was wearing a face mask. If Johnson were wearing gloves, he would have needed to change them every single time he touched something. Otherwise, he would have transferred trace evidence from one item to another between different parts of the body or from himself onto the evidence. 
People generally unconsciously touch their own face two to five times a minute. This wasn't a big deal in 1975, but it is critical for items that are subjected to 21st century DNA testing. After photographing Donna's wounds, Officer Johnson then began to remove all of the items from Donna's body and log them into evidence. The first thing he took off was the large purple scarf still tied around her waist. He then removed her bra, both of her coats, her blouse, and her socks. Next, Johnson collected all of Donna's jewelry, a gold necklace, a silver ring, and three leather bracelets. He removed a sample of her head hair and strands of her hair that were stuck to her right thigh and right abdomen. He also collected some leaves stuck to the inside of her right leg and took scrapings from under Donna's fingernails. The autopsy began right there at the funeral home at 6.05 p.m. We don't have a list of everyone in the room, but we know that Dr. Miller, Brian Johnson, and Bob Bird were all present. Again, if Dr. Miller was wearing gloves, he would not have changed them to avoid cross-contamination. It would not have been normal practice to wear a face mask in a non-contagious case for at least another 20 years. Dr. Miller conducted a full physical exam, including for evidence of sexual assault or injury. At 6.50 p.m., he removed a sample of Donna's pubic hair, put it in an evidence envelope, and gave it to Brian Johnson. Brian Johnson's report indicates that he received the pubic hair sample at autopsy at 1850 hours from Dr. Miller, and at 1935, he secured the pubic hair in his lab. The small envelope of a sample of Donna's pubic hair became item of evidence number two, and it was entered on evidence card number one in the case. Item number two left Brian Johnson's custody on December 30, 1975, and was given to the custody of Chuck Morton in the Oakland Crime Lab. This is confirmed by a signed receipt from Morton on the same day. On January 5, 1976, Mike Grubb in the Oakland lab took a swab from the frozen rectal wash, evidence item number one, and subjected it to acid phosphatase, and then did the same with a small area from the pubic hair sample, evidence item number two. Both samples were negative for semen. Then Grubb removed what he described in his lab notes as, quote, dirt adhered to crusted stain, end quote, from the pubic hair sample and placed it under the stereo microscope. He then subjected it to AP and determined that color development at 30 seconds indicated the presence of seminal fluid, or pre-ejaculate. We have so many questions about that finding, starting with why Grubb's first AP test on that pubic hair sample failed to develop adequate color, but dirt removed from the same sample did. How did basic common sense fall into a black hole there? If someone had ejaculated onto Donna's body, how could it possibly be reasonable to believe that the only trace of it would need to be scraped off a speck of dirt under a microscope? Wouldn't the AP tests on her actual pubic hair have also come back positive? It's extremely rare to find pre-ejaculate with absolutely no sperm cells. The concentration of such cells would be low, but not absent. We're really angry that we have to ask, but where was all of the so-called ejaculate? What about her thigh and the fringy scarf tied around her waist? Why were those totally negative? 
who ejaculates a microscopic amount onto a grain of sand? What happened to the sperm cells and the killer's PGM and blood type? This is actual evidence used to send a man to prison for 40 years. We're not exaggerating or making this up. We don't blame the jury. They didn't hear any of these details. In fact, the trial jury never heard from Mike Grubb or about the microscopic amount of pre-ejaculate. The second big question here is the source of the, quote, crusted dirt. There is no item of evidence taken at autopsy that matches that description. So it appears that the dirt came from the envelope of pubic hair marked evidence number two. So was that crusted dirt originally collected from Donna's pubic hair? No, it wasn't. Here is Dr. Miller's testimony to the grand jury on February 5th, 1976. Powell, and what did you find with regard to the pubic hair of the victim? Miller, the pubic hair was crusted with dirt and there was gray-white material mixed with the dirt. All of this was adhered to the skin rather than to the pubic hair. All right. Doctor, did you take any samples of that pubic hair together with the dirt and gray-white matter that was encrusted? Yes, I did. And what did you do with that sample of pubic hair? This material was given to Brian Johnson of the crime laboratory at 6.50 p.m. Okay, wait right there. The crusted dirt was not collected from Donna's pubic hair. It was adhered to her skin, scraped off, and then put in the same envelope with her pubic hair. Evidence item number two. Apparently, the labs in Oakland and Berkeley assumed that the crusted dirt had come from the pubic hair in the envelope. Grubb and Blake were totally unaware that it was actually a separate sample. We also want to make it clear that no lab ever mentioned any gray or white appearance to the crust. It's always described as the color of menstrual blood and dirt. We don't know if Dr. Miller was confused because he saw fresh tree spray on the body, or he just added that detail to make it sound like semen. After Grubb completed his first round of testing, Morton transferred several items of evidence to Blake's lab in Berkeley on January 6, 1976. These items of evidence were Item of evidence number 60, vial of Donna's blood taken at autopsy. Item of evidence 61, Donna's stomach contents. Item of evidence number 87, vial of Clifton's blood taken in custody. Item of evidence number 2, Donna's pubic hair. Item of evidence number one, Donna's anal wash. For some reason, the lab notes from Blake's work were not given to the defense, but we do have the less comprehensive report that Blake wrote to Morton that summarizes his findings. The first examination was a microscopic analysis of the contents of evidence item number two. Visual and low-power microscopic examination of pubic hair from Donna Richmond. A large number of pubic hairs were submitted for examination. Many of the hairs were found to be adhering to one another and were contaminated with soil. Under low power magnification, the clumped hairs had a considerable amount of red substance on their surface that was presumed to be blood. A considerable number of soil particles were also found to be adhering to their surfaces. The hairs were light brown to blonde in color with the medulla easily visible. Just to be clear, Blake did not visualize anything described as white or gray, only red menstrual blood. As far as we can tell, he examined the entire contents of the enveloped marked evidence item number two. That means that the entire sample was exposed in his lab for an unknown period of time, 
Blake then mixed what he described as a small sample of clumped hair with saline solution, spun it down to separate the solids, and then conducted AP testing on the solution. Since we don't have the lab notes, it's really impossible to assess this test. All we have is Blake's statement that the results were consistent with the concentration found in semen. It appears that Blake also prepared two slides of this sample and sent those back to Grubb when he returned the items of evidence. Blake also developed a PGM type from the extract fluid of 1-1. He concluded that the source was likely the menstrual blood since its PGM concentration would be extremely high. Blake also AP tested the anal wash, evidence item number 1, and determined that it was negative for semen. He then used the known blood samples to determine that Donna's blood type was A and that Clifton's was O, and that they were both PGM type 1-1. All items were then returned to Mike Grubb in Morton's lab on January 19, 1976. It is unknown if Grubb accessed evidence item number 2 again, or if so, exactly when. The next set of lab testing we have documented occurred on January 22, 1976. On that date, Grubb conducted microscopic examinations of four slides prepared by Blake. The first two were from the anal wash, evidence item number one, and they were both negative for sperm cells. The other two slides were both samples of the crusted material tested by Blake. These slides did not contain any hair, only samples of the dirt material that Blake claimed showed a positive AP test in his lab. Grubb's microscopic examination of those slides found the following epithelia, nematodes, bacteria, and some dirt particles. The epithelia were consistent with vaginal cells from the menstrual blood, and the nematodes were obviously from the dirt. There were no sperm cells, and there was no description of anything white or gray. Grubb then performed ABO blood typing on the slides prepared by Blake. Remember, these slides were samples of the crusted material that Blake said was positive for AP and contained human semen. So Grubb received the slides of crusted dirt with a written finding from Blake that the slides contained semen. These are the exact same samples that Blake relied upon when he testified at Clifton's trial. ABO testing was successful. Grubb determined that the sample from Blake was blood type A. This testing was completed on January 26, 1976, the same day D.A. Powell convened the grand jury to decide if there was enough evidence to continue to a trial. Grubb's testimony to the grand jury, February 5, 1976. Powell. All right, and what was your conclusion from your examining the samples of pubic hair of Donna Jo Richmond? Grubb. The reaction that I received that came up was indicative of the presence of semen. Did you do any of the blood typing, or was that done by someone else? The material, I transported the material to Ed Blake at the University of California, who performed ABO typing on the blood samples, and PGM typing on the blood samples and the semen material on the pubic hairs. All right, then is Mr. Blake here? Yes. I then picked up the material at a later date and performed an ABO typing of the material on the pubic hairs. The reaction that I received was indicative of a type A individual, and that is as far as I could type it. Ed Blake's testimony to the grand jury, February 5, 1976. Powell. 
Did you have occasion to examine the pubic hair matter that was from the victim, Donna Jo Richmond? Blake. Yes, I did. And can you tell us what your examination was and what your conclusions were? The purpose of my examination was to determine whether there was any seminal material contained within the matted pubic hair. And a number of tests were done, and it was able to be shown that the pubic hair, the matted pubic hair, contained human semen. In addition to that, there was some amount of blood that I assumed to be menstrual blood. All right, and I have no further questions of this witness. Evidence items number one and two were returned to the Tulare County Crime Lab Refrigerator on June 10, 1976, and destroyed on order of TCSO Sergeant Bob Bird on April 8, 1977. So, that's the full record of Donna's pubic hair and crusted material removed from her skin at autopsy. Those items were combined as item of evidence number two, and we've covered the complete history of testing and chain of custody for that envelope, including its destruction by Brian Johnson. Now, let's discuss the slide labeled VPH, or Victim's Pubic Hair, that was submitted for DNA testing to the Crime Lab in Fresno in 2011. We've covered this slide extensively in Facebook and website blog posts in the past week, so we won't go into too much detail here. You can see the documents and photos associated with that slide attached to those posts. Unlike the envelope of pubic hair marked evidence number two, there is no chain of custody establishing a relationship between Donna and the slide VPH. There's no record of the existence of that slide until 2002, when a photocopy of it was provided to Clifton's Defense Council as part of discovery ordered by the court. Prior to that court order, Morton's lab in Oakland had repeatedly denied having any evidence in the Richmond case, including slides. Our first question was whether or not it could be one of the slides prepared by Ed Blake and given to Grubb. We determined that it was not. Blake's slides did not contain hairs, and the handwriting on slide VPH matches others prepared at the Oakland lab. The next question is whether or not the hairs on the slide VPH were extracted from the envelope of pubic hair, item of evidence number two. As you can see, if you look at the images of the slides we posted, almost all of the slides refer to their correct evidence number. It's not exactly a chain of custody, but at least it's a record that connects the case evidence to the slide. In fact, the only slides that do not refer to an evidence number contain Clifton's head hairs, Clifton's pubic hairs, and Donna's pubic hairs. The lab's explanation for the lack of evidence numbers on these slides is that they were not items of evidence, but reference samples only. By that, they mean that the hairs on those slides were mounted so that they could be compared to hairs found on other evidence in the case. Remember, prior to DNA testing, hair evidence was evaluated based on microscopic characteristic analysis. This turned out not to be good science and a large number of DNA exoneration cases originally involved improper microscopic hair evidence. They attempted a lot of this type of hair matching in the Richmond case, so that explanation that the hair slides were only meant as lab reference samples makes sense. However, that doesn't suddenly transform slide VPH into case evidence. There is absolutely no way to know the source of those hairs, when they were mounted to that slide, 
who mounted them, whether or not the slide was properly stored, or who had access to the slide between 1975 and 2011. Even more disturbing, if that's possible, is the fact that at some point the cover on slide VPH came off and it was reattached using scotch tape. We figure that the next thing DA Ward will do is to revise his report to claim that slide VPH was tested for semen in 1976. He would be mistaken or intentionally lying if he were to make that statement a fact. The only person who testified at trial that semen was present was Ed Blake, based on his testing of the crusted material. Blake was never in possession of slide VPH. Was it the sample that Grubb said tested positive for seminal fluid? No. That sample was also dirt, contained no hair, and came directly from evidence envelope number two. Additionally, in 2003, Morton's lab stated in writing, quote, Our laboratory does not have slides of the victim's hair containing semen, end quote, and referenced the photocopied slides, which included slide VPH. We hope that D.A. Ward will not make another statement of fact that is demonstrably false. Speaking of false statements of fact, D.A. Ward's report stated, quote, In 2011, a partial YSTR DNA profile was developed from semen attached to one of Donna's pubic hairs. End quote. There was no semen on slide VPH, and D.A. Ward has no good faith reason to believe that there was. In addition to the incredibly clear statement in the 2003 letter from Morton's lab, slide VPH was tested for semen at the Fresno Crime Lab prior to the DNA testing in 2011. This was a current, state-of-the-art examination, and no epithelial or sperm cells were found on the slide. This information was also summarized in the lab's final report to Tulare D.A. Wilmore. There was no semen submitted for DNA testing in the Richmond case. We have no idea why D.A. Ward would include this critical misstatement of fact in his report. Equally inexplicable is this false statement of fact from D.A. Ward's report. Quote, There was no physical evidence that Donna's vagina had been penetrated, but her pubic hair was crusted with dirt and semen. In 1976, the criminalist was unable to obtain a blood type for this particular semen. End quote. Again, Blake is the only person who testified at the trial that there was a positive finding of semen. Blake sent his positive sample to Grubb for ABO testing, which was completed January 26, 1976. Grubb found that the sample, specifically identified as semen and provided by Blake, was contributed by someone with blood type A. We have Grubb's lab notes. Grubb testified to these facts at the grand jury, and we have the time slips and invoices from the lab charging for that testing. All of these documents have been posted to our Facebook page and website blog in past posts on this issue. Why would D.A. Ward's report contain such a blatant lie? Our only answer is that his office is treating this as a game or some type of PR war of words. That tells us a lot about their mindset. The report demonstrates no interest in the truth, only making their case to the press and maintaining Clifton's conviction. We can't say we're surprised at the general attitude, but we are fully shocked that sworn officers of the law and attorneys bound by rules of ethics and professional responsibility would go this far. Honestly, we did not expect the DA to mention the ABO testing 
since Clifton's blood type O totally excluded him as the donor of the supposed semen on the crusted dirt that Blake tested and testified about at trial. If that was semen, it did not belong to Clifton. And if it wasn't semen, the entire attempted rape charge was fabricated, and Blake lied on the witness stand. Take your pick. You can't have it both ways. We expected D.A. Ward to bury this evidence, not make up a flat-out lie. We've decided to limit this episode to the issues surrounding these two specific misrepresentations of fact in the D.A.'s report. We challenged D.A. Ward to provide scientific evidence proving that semen was present on slide VPH when it was DNA tested in 2011, or that any semen has ever been DNA tested in this case. We're not interested in words or opinions. Either provide scientific laboratory testing that invalidates the records we've posted, or change your report. We're so disappointed in the journalists who have been covering this case. These aren't opinions. They are facts regarding evidence in the homicide of a young girl. The press couldn't wait to jump on the sensationalistic headline that D'Angelo was cleared by DNA testing on the killer's semen. It didn't matter whether or not it was true, just that they got clicks. If Tulare County had wanted to run DNA tests on the same samples originally identified by Blake and Grubb, then they shouldn't have ordered that evidence destroyed. We'll address the rest of the DA's report in the next episode, including other issues regarding the 2011 DNA testing and all of the evidence the state relied on at trial that has mysteriously disappeared in the DA's review. Mm -hmm.